the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we are back. Pastor Paul Shepard with us today in studio. We invite you to check out his broadcast, Destined for Victory. The program comes your way each Monday through Friday at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. We're talking about Pastor Paul's new book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. I was struck you were mentioning about sort of that that trifecta of challenges that we face between the world, the flesh, and the devil. Can all three come under the category of of idol worship, we hear idol worship in the context of certainly Old Testament. We think of, uh, of you know golden calves that have been fashioned <laughs> and so forth and so on. Right. But idol worship can really be almost anything, can't it? That's true. Anything that rivals the attention and the affection the Lord alone should get from us is a potential idol. And of course, that's what our enemies do. Both the world, the flesh, and certainly the devil all want to compete for the throne of our hearts. So all of us need to realize, I have a throne. It's up to me who sits on it. The flesh is most comfortable when it is sitting on the throne. That's your carnal nature, your Adamic self, with you without being led by the Lord, and that certainly wants to sit on the throne. The world, we can see in today's world, we we who are people of morals and ethics, you can see now how greatly challenged those things that many of us grew up just knowing it was right, the moral consensus many of us grew up with is no longer a consensus. It's a moral debate. It is a moral divide. In fact, we are now ridiculed for believing what 30, 40, 50 years ago was taken for granted in American life. All of those things, that new philosophy is competing. And certainly the devil from the very beginning has wanted to usurp the authority of God. So all of us have to be aware. The enemy wants to sit on the throne. It's up to us to make sure Jesus remains on the throne. And perhaps while yet uh, society is uh, debating and changing its mind in the way it views uh, matters concerning uh, morality and and. Uh flesh and so forth. The reality is God hasn't changed his opinion on any of this. And he does not plan to make any changes. His truth prevails no matter what. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Lord's truth remains forever. When we talk about approaching God to come in and in the desire of seeing God's restorative and redemptive grace take place in our life for whatever the circumstances and situation might be. As you noted, Nehemiah first understood if this was going to get done, God was going to be the one that was going to do it. It could not be done in a vacuum, meaning that he needed God's anointing. But he didn't just say, okay, let's get a team together and run down to Home Depot and buy a bunch of two-by-fours and head down there and start rebuilding the wall. He stopped 
before taking one step forward and he prayed. And, you know, in school, we grew up with the three R's. In the book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, you talk about Nehemiah's four R's. Walk us through those. Well, it was important that when Nehemiah realized that he needed God to help him fulfill what was going on in his heart, he first started out recognizing who God is. The first R I talk about in the book is recognizing God. Because without recognizing the divine, sometimes a big problem here on earth can completely overwhelm us. So he recognized God and then he repented of any sin, any shortcoming on behalf of Israel. He said, we have blown it, Lord. And so I repent. And on behalf of your people, we recognize we did not do what you wanted us to do. And then he went into a, what I call reminder. So he went from recognition to repentance to reminding God of his promises. That doesn't mean we think God forgot. Sometimes when we pray, I think it would be good for us when we pray to take some of the promises of scripture and say, Lord, here's what you said to us. And I'm just willing to believe that this applies to this circumstances and to my life now. Then he went into the request, asking God to give him success in his endeavor. And I think that's an important distinction. You know, sometimes uh, folks that promote uh, you know a positive thinking and so forth will, will engage in self-talk. Uh, I can do it. I can make it. I can do it. I can make it happen, all of this. And yet what you're suggesting here is Nehemiah didn't get into self-talk trying to kind of uh, hype himself up like uh, you might before the big game right. in the locker room, but but rather to say, God, here are your promises. As much as he is reciting those back to God, yes. he's also speaking God's word in his own hearing. That's right. That's right. And I think that's what the Bible means. The Old Testament often talks about meditating on the word. For instance, the Lord told Joshua, meditate in it day and night. I think you're right, Craig. What we are called to do is to not only remind God of what he, he said and what he promised, but in so doing, we're rehearsing over and over who our God is because as big as our problems are, our God is so much bigger. And if we rehearse those and meditate on them, then when we go to make our requests, we know that God is able to fulfill them. Isn't it interesting to know that the flow here that so many of the principles that were even employed by Nehemiah in going about the rebuilding of the walls were principles that along the way had slipped by the wayside. Yes. Uh, the idol worship, uh, the lack of proper recognition of God, the lack of recognizing not only who he is, but our ability to to repent, to go before the Lord and say, God, I blew it. Yep. So much of what we use as tools, so to speak, to rebuild are the very things that if those had remained in place yes. all along, we might yes. not have been in this shape in the first place. In the first place. And that's what we all have to realize. When I've made my greatest mistakes, it's because somewhere along the line, I stepped away from the things the Lord wanted me to stay focused on. Back again to Joshua, the Lord said, stay, look at what I tell you to do. Don't turn from it, he said, to the left or to the right. And in today's world, just like in his day, it's easy to be distracted. And when we get distracted, we can get off course. But our God is the ultimate GPS, and he knows how to get us from where, when I'm preaching about that, I say the 
thing I love about GPS is even when I haven't been paying attention to the directions, been playing my music too loud or having too much of a uh, of an argument in the car or whatever's going on, if I get off course, the GPS doesn't fuss at me. The GPS just says recalculating, redirecting, whatever term they use, and it means if you're ready to listen, I can get you from here to where you're supposed to be, and that's the way God works with us. It's an interesting parallel to the Holy Spirit who sometimes will just kind of gently nudge us, <laughs> gently right. nudge us. We may continue to choose to ignore what the Spirit is saying, but yet God comes along and just continues to lovingly, gently nudge us, trying to move us into the right direction. Yes, he does. And if we will learn that God is the is the one who began the good work in us, and he is also the one who promised to fulfill it. So if we get go astray temporarily, you can do that. You mentioned earlier uh, about our finances. You can need God to redirect you in in money matters. Many of us have made financial mistakes and um, are where we should not be financially speaking. But if you trust God with your finances or any other area of your life. He's able to get you from where you are to where you need to be. But it begins with repenting, recognizing, repenting, and then reminding God, you said you weren't going to give up on me and then make your request. Help me to discipline myself in my finances or in my family life and my marriage, whatever it is, and we'll see God work in our lives. We're in studio today with Pastor Paul Shepard, his new book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation, some closing thoughts from Pastor Paul. Meanwhile, if you want to get more information, the book again is available online. You can simply go to the usual suspects, Amazon.com, or you can order it directly through the Destiny Broadcast website, PastorPaul.net. That's PastorPaul.net. Destined for Victory, heard weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. That brief time out, then back with more, some closing thoughts with Pastor Paul Shepard as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're into the home stretch in our visit today with Pastor Paul Shepard. His latest book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. The book, again, available through Amazon.com. You can also order it online through the Destined for Victory broadcast website. That's simply PastorPaul.net. That's PastorPaul.net. One of the things that you point out in the book, and I think that this is not only uh, um, problematic as to what gets us in trouble, but it's also something that we need to be mindful as we're attempting to kind of get back out of trouble, and that is the word authenticity. Um, You take note that oftentimes there are a lot of folks in Christianity, as our relationship with the Lord sometimes sort of ebbs and flows, that our, our Christianity is either a way in which we deal with our stuff, or for a lot of folks, it's the way in which we hide from our stuff, or we hide ourselves behind our Christianity. Put on a happy face, everything's great at church, That's Sunday right. morning at 11 o'clock, and we think we've got everybody fooled, and we might have a lot of the folks fooled, but the one that we don't have fooled is the Lord himself. I, I really am working hard to help people understand, um, t- to use the 
colloquial expression, there's no future in fronting. There's no point in putting on airs because what we need to be about is getting in touch with who we are, where we are in our lives, and letting God take us from where we are to where we ought to be. So I talk, as you say, about authenticity, the importance of being honest with yourself and honest with the Lord. And so whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're going through, don't hide behind uh, nice, cute sayings or anything like that. Find some people, especially in your life, in your church, in your circle of fellowship with other believers. Find people who can love the truth and still walk with you as you go from where you are to where you ought to be. And if we will be authentic people and build authentic relationships, we will see that our authentic God is going to bring us through and bring us out of everything we have to deal with. We're sometimes perhaps fearful. We don't want to wrestle with God. (laughs) Uh, It's not just a uniquely Job experience. I think all of us have had moments in life when we've gotten into that kind of conflict and we literally feel like we're in a wrestling match with the Lord and yet God can handle it. Yes, he can. And, you know, I'm reminded, as you pointed out, regarding the the four R's that Nehemiah practiced, that that one of them is repenting of sin. Yes. And a big part of that authenticity is to be able to say to God, I blew it. I maybe am in this mess because I put myself there. Absolutely. The scripture is very clear. If we will confess then the Lord is faithful and just to forgive and to do the work of restoration. But it requires the confession. That's one of the things that's hard to get some people to do. Just like Adam and Eve hid from God when they should have come clean and said, man, we really messed up. Please forgive us. They hid. They they covered themselves. And God says in his word, if you cover your sins, you won't prosper. But if you repent, confess, forsake them. He will bless you. What's the big takeaway? As you have studied the life of Nehemiah and the challenges that he faced in the call to help rebuild the walls, for people that are saying, okay, I'm I'm beginning to really grasp this, but at the end of the day, the big takeaway here, the big lesson of the life of Nehemiah that we can apply to ourselves here and now is what? I want people to understand that the word almost is, is a word that we ought to take as a message of hope. The enemy tried his best to destroy Jerusalem, which housed, of course, the people of God. And when they got back from exile, they found they did not have a a safe and secure place to live. But almost destroyed is different from definitely destroyed. God is a God who takes our almost and turns them around so that we can see success even after almost failing. And I want to encourage every listener to, to know wherever you are in your life, the almost is not going to be the end of you. That will not be the final statement of the story of your life. Give it to God. He'll take you to the places you've never seen or known before. And clearly, Nehemiah saw that. I mean, mean, because as he got the report of what had happened 
to Jerusalem. It wasn't, well, the whole thing is destroyed, the walls are all down, the city is in ruins, so, you know, let's just forget about it here. It would just not uh, not worry about it. No, he, he saw that he saw that potential. He saw that while it might have been destroyed almost, it wasn't completely and utterly. So there's that sense of glimmer of hope, isn't there? Absolutely. And we are called to be people of hope. We have a good message to share. We're in the gospel business, not the bad news, not the destroyed business. We're in the business of saying, yeah, it was almost destroyed, but God and God is able to give us victory out of the almost disaster. And I guess for the believer today, if you've gone through the challenges at work, in the family, with your marriage, in your finances, with your health, whatever it might be, if you're listening to this conversation, you're still here. Yes. You might have almost been destroyed. That's right. But you are still here. And there is therefore still hope, provided that you take the Nehemiah approach to how to go about rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed in your life. In my church, I recently preached a message entitled, Get Your Hopes Up. I grew up where there were times when parents or teachers were going to take us on a special trip, um, but maybe they got a bad forecast for the weather and they'd say, oh, don't, don't get your hopes up. We might not be able to do it. My word to you today is no, get your hopes up. Believe God that no matter how disastrous it is, he is able to bring you into a better place. And I think at the end of the day, remembering that God is in the business of being restorative and redemptive, that is the perhaps the one area that we can hang our hope on. Yes, sir. Absolutely. God is a restorer, and he'll do it in your life and mine. The book is called Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. (laughs) Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah, newly published and available through the website PastorPaul.net. That's PastorPaul.net. The broadcast Destined for Victory, weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. And, of course, Destiny Christian Fellowship. Service times at 8.30 and 11 a.m. located in Fremont. You can get details on the web at DestinyBayArea.org. Lots of exciting things going on at the church, Pastor Paul. Yes, sir. And not only that, I've recently taken on an additional responsibility to help pastor a church clear across the country in Detroit, Michigan, while remaining the senior pastor of Destiny here in the Bay Area. So if you you don't have enough to pray about, keep me on your prayer list because I need the Lord's strength. But I know if he gave me this charge, he'll help me fulfill it and I'll help both churches fulfill his plan for them. We'll be praying for you. We appreciate the time today and the insights. Pastor Paul Shepard, host of Destined for Victory and Senior Pastor at Destiny Christian Fellowship. Details again on the web, PastorPaul.net. The book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We think often of what it means, the, the significance of of the spiritual heritage that uh, many of us have, those that have a connection to the history of the church and faith um, through the faith of our fathers. And as much as we oftentimes ponder what that means, how often do we stop and think about the faith of not just our fathers, but the faith of our sons? 
The reality is that as much as the gospel message is timeless, we're seeing the way current generations react to it, and, and most notably how oftentimes we're beginning to see a shift taking place, that while the faith of our fathers and that generation and maybe the current generation is strong, the faith of our sons and our daughters is on weak grounds. There is some new research out by the respected pollster George Barna. In fact, he's been a guest on this program many times that would suggest that there is a frightening trend taking place amongst 20-somethings in our country today. And to get some insights on this topic, David Kinneman joins us. He has written a new book entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. He serves also as the president of the Barna Group. And David, great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You know, we always want to hear about uh, the enthusiasm of young people and their relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that fondly, there's a good percentage of those listening to our conversation right now who found Christ uh, as young children or as teenagers and have continued on in faith uh, for years and years and years, and yet to begin to see that there's a, a trend taking place that isn't a very encouraging one, I, I think ought to cause all of us to pause and ask the question, what's happening? If we understand that the gospel is timely then what of Christianity today in the West, in North America, that suddenly is not maintaining the same appeal, so to speak, for those in that uh, special age group of late teens into their 20s? Well, what's challenging for us now is that the culture has changed so quickly over the last 10, 20 years that we make the argument in the research that essentially people are more enculturated than ever. They're more captive to our culture than we've ever seen a generation done so. And this is true of young Christians. This is true of young non-Christians. Uh, they have more access to all sorts of ideas and worldviews through technology. Uh, they have you know exposure to uh, you know sexuality and all sorts of things earlier in life. Media is giving them a certain sort of worldview and perspective. And so for those reasons and many others, a lot of social changes. They're getting married much later. They're having children much later. They're responding to the divorce culture that the boomers largely, you know, enacted in our culture. And so, uh, for many reasons, they're 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 disengaging from the church. They're disengaging from Christianity in some cases. And we do need to pay attention to this cultural reality and how is it that we actually raise young people of deep faith? Is this then less about? Perhaps a particular age group then on the on the continuum, uh, David, as it is suggestive of the church losing some of its grasp, some of its influence then on culture. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you asked me that because when you talk about this phrase, you lost me, we very intentionally titled it because that's the voice of the next generation about the church. You know, you lost me. I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. And part of it's because they're so distracted. They're so busy doing other things. But I, I think you're actually really on point with that question in that what we're finding from a lot of our research is it's certainly true of the next generation and how we work with them, but it's also true of all of us in this culture, of any of any generation, that we're more distracted, our attention spans are shorter, we have more, there's more things that are vying for our, you know, time and attention and mind space. And so I think it's more difficult for the gospel to go forward in this, you know, very abundant, uh, pluralist, uh, you, you know, very 
you know, very rich country that we have. And, and no nation has ever been able to really withstand the prosperity that that America currently enjoys. I think that's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves is how do we disciple in that era, not just the next generation, but all of us. Well, and I think not just the appeal, as you're suggesting, of, of all that uh, that uh, the culture, so to speak, has to, to offer in every sense of the word. <clears throat> But then, too, it strikes me, David, that that relationships uh, have changed uh, pretty significantly. I mean, for example, having grown up as a product of the 1960s and 70s, having come to faith in Christ in the 1970s, um, it didn't take a lot of explaining to do when we talked about uh, what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk in fellowship with very God himself. I mean, we were all in that era longing for a a deeper, more significant, more satisfying relationship on, on the human level so that that meant something to us and those were words and phrases that resonated with with the longing that we were seeking to satisfy that said look at the way things have changed for this generation that has grown up on uh, cable television and the internet and texting and you know relationships today are about what you do on the backside of an iPhone as opposed to the level of, of, of contact that they're just pure human contact that we used to have has changed so radically. And so I would wonder if part of this is just the notion of how we do relationships has changed so much. Um, If I can't relate to a personal one-on-one conversation with my dad, because I'm used to doing all this stuff electronically, how can I possibly think about a personal one-on-one relationship with a God that I can't even see? That's, That's really well said. And when you think about it, so when you talk about a youth group or a college ministry, And in the past, 20 years ago, that provided a sort of extracurricular place for a person to have a relationship, uh, not only with God, but also with with each other, with other Christians. And what we're seeing with the youngest generation of teenagers now, uh, young Christians, is that the youth group experience is even changing, in that they don't need the social network of the youth group like they did in the past. It's, It's really more about either their pursuit of God or their pursuit of other kinds of things. Um, you know, we're finding that their their engagement in youth ministry is, is is changing, and I think this goes to the heart of it. That you know, what we found in this research is that it's not enough for us just to have young people who are engaged in church services, and and really as parents or youth pastors or as uh, any kind of leader within a church, we need to do a better job of recognizing that the signs of faithfulness aren't just attendance at a program. That in fact, as we're living in an information world, I think that Jesus is getting lost in the data stream of all the the tweeting and Facebooking and digital activities that we have. And just as you say, it's hard enough to have face-to-face relationships with others. I think this idea of connecting with a real and holy and personal God is actually really changing for this generation. And and unfortunately, most churches and parents say, well, you know, my my young person is there, they're, they're attending faithfully, and that's not, in my mind, enough of a measure based on all this research of faithfulness. It's part of the problem, too, as we suggested here, David, that the way we do relationships, um, certainly in the West today, is changing pretty drastically. It's easy for people to hide behind the facade 
of Facebook and MySpace and uh, so-called social media where you can kind of uh, you can be as vulnerable or not as you choose to be. You can be as real or not as you choose to be. And when suddenly you're now trying to confront young people with a real, vibrant, true, pure, um, all of the bells and whistles and, and, and sort of a facade all stripped down personal relationship with God, I would, I would wonder if we couch it in the terms that we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if that doesn't scare a lot of young people today because they look and say, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know me that, that real or that intimately or that personally. I would rather hide bef- behind the facade of who I want you to think I am because I'm too afraid to show you who I am. Yeah, I think that's true, and and we learned from our research that a lot of these young people feel as though they have to live split lives, uh, split personalities between their church self, their digital self, their family self, their school self, and and so this era of you know helping and and this is an opportunity for families and churches and all of us who care about this next generation to help reconnect the soul and the person and the heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus talks about, and and so I think there's a great opportunity for church. But this idea of split souls, um, you think about that even in terms of sexuality, we see this from the research that many young people feel split. They, they have to be one person in church, traditionalist and buttoned up and, you know, uh, careful about what they say, and then something else entirely when it comes to their sexual you know, habits and lives. And so we, we have to do a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of things we should be concerned about with this generation, and I think there's a lot of things we ought to be concerned about, about how we as the church respond in a healthy way to the culture and how we prepare students to live in that culture. Indeed so. And the other thing, too, is, you know, oftentimes not only is there this sense of a split, as you suggest, but then I think a lot of young people feel as if they're being forced to choose one or the other. It's like the faith of my fathers or uh, whatever option B is. And we'll talk more about this aspect. We continue our conversation tonight with David Kinneman. He is the president of the Barna Group, a new book out that is an eye-opener. It's called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. As this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, Barna Research. You're very familiar with the work of George Barna. They have taken time to, to study, in particular, the faith of our sons and daughters and to see in what direction all of that is headed. And all of this revealed inside the pages of a new book, by the way, entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church. David, as you indicated, and we were talking a bit before the break, what's really happening here is that the, the, as the church is losing its influence on culture today and as the stranglehold of the power that said culture has on young people today is is ever increasing i mean it's clear to see how this is being set up as kind of a, a perfect storm isn't it yeah, it really is, and I think it's this whole research project, I mean, I'm interested in it as a researcher, I'm also interested in it as a parent, I'm interested as a, a pastor's son who, who grew up in the church, and it's really, for me, helped me understand how do we actually work with this generation in the midst of a changing culture, and, you know, the title is strong because that's the, what young people say about the church, but it's really a very hopeful project about how do we actually reconnect with this generation, how do we actually learn faithfulness in a new context, we use the story of Daniel, um, you know, from Scripture, where you know he was taken out of a, a comfortable. 
social setting, you know, as a young Hebrew and taken into this culture of Babylon. We learn about that in the book of Daniel in, in Scripture. And uh, we use that story really often in the book as a way of understanding what does it mean to be faithful in an entirely new context. And I think that's what we're facing now with this generation of young Christians. All right, let me give you an example. This is right out of the front pages here. Uh, in fact, a story that appeared on ESPN regarding uh, Tim Tebow. Everybody knows that he's been taking some flack, uh, most specifically recently from a Broncos quarterback, Jake Plummer, uh, in a radio interview that uh, basically said that uh, he wished that Tebow would curb, quote, his references to Jesus and his faith, um, saying effectively, we're getting the message. You don't have to continue to remind me time and time again. Um, Through the lens of this research, uh, talk to me about that scenario. Yeah, so what's interesting about this is there's both the trend of you know young people losing their faith, and there's also what we call a counter trend that we describe in the book of young people who stick with faith and why. And and you know I think Tim Tebow is an example of a young twenty-something who is very out front with his faith, who certainly has never you know lost his faith such that we know or at, you know that we can we can document um, at this point. But when you look at, at um, the culture, what is so interesting about what's challenging for young Christians is that their peers are more skeptical of ever than Christianity, and many of these peers actually had backgrounds within either Catholicism or Protestant Christianity. And so I think I think that's a great example of, you know, here's a, an example of the counter trend in Tim Tebow and the, the, the public nature of his faith. We see many other people who are in Hollywood, who are in music, who are in business, who, you know, are very much passionate about uh, the church and about Christianity. Um, but what's different that we see now compared to the previous generation and generations, say, of the 1960s and 50s, is that there's a bigger gap now between young Christians and their peers, and they're, they're having to reach further in order to explain the nature of Christianity. And, and you know, the one thing we might say is that as, as much as we should su- support and applaud Tim Tebow's public, upfront faith... You know, what is it about that that's going to transform culture? You know, it's not just because he acknowledges Jesus that, that he's going to be transformational. It's because of the quality of his life and other aspects of his vocation and calling that people will respond to that message. So it's important for us to recognize the skepticism of this generation as well. Is there any attraction to this generation that looks at something like that and says you are repeatedly subjecting yourself to criticism by doing this? And we've all seen him kneel and pray after a touchdown or... Uh, during key moments during the game. Uh, it's very attention-getting. Uh, he is being ridiculed for it. Does, it. does it work into the logic of this generation as we're trying to understand them better, David, that some people would say, you know, if you're willing to voluntarily subject yourself repeatedly to that kind of criticism for your faith, that there must be something awfully special about your faith? I mean, do, do young people draw that conclusion? Yeah, they do, and they're looking for things that are that matter in the world and to their own lives and to their own sense of meaning and their own spiritual journeys. And, you know, this is where I think this is a generation that's very interested in truth and very interested in things that matter. Uh, they're also highly narcissistic and, and distracted, so it's sometimes difficult for us to get their attention on things. But I think they respond to seeing people that are sold out to any cause. I think the difference that we should keep in mind, too, is that they're a very diverse generation. They have come to expect that they should respect and you know, give anybody of any faith, of any sexual persuasion, of any ethnic background, I mean, of any of any 
background at all, that it, you know they, they fully expect that that everyone is equally you know right and equally valid at all times. And so there's a certain sense in which not many of these young people that we interview are willing to take huge risks for their own you know their own uh, positioning, their own brand in the world. And I think that's one of the things that you know is a, is a challenge for them. They're they're not necessarily willing, like Daniel in in the story of the Lions, then uh, necessarily willing to you know give up their life on behalf of their faith. And and that's that's a, an interesting challenge that I think we face with this generation. We also have a, a generation, I think, David, that is very interested in sort of leaving their mark on things. I mean, we, we're seeing this, I think, to a degree with some of, not all by a long shot, but some of uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters. Or we think of people that get involved in things like, you know, uh, protecting the planet and animals and things of this sort. It, it seems to be a generation that very much is engaged in wanting to make a difference. Do we... Do we couch some of the impact of Christianity in in those terms so that there is that sense of attractiveness to it, or, or, or two young people buy it, rather? Well, I think you're right that there's a real sense of, of wanting to make a difference in the world, and they're, they're very much socially conscious. But what we find in our research is some of that is only skin deep for these young people. You know, they, 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 it's really cool to care. In some ways, we could say that we've effectively made them consumers of causes rather than uh, what I think Christ calls us to is to be really spent on behalf of those causes. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. I, over the, uh, the weekend here, I saw some pictures of Matt Damon, who is apparently filming a new movie down in Mexico, and he's been very much in favor of PETA and urging people, you know, if you can be a vegan, you know, more power to you, and very much on that side of, you know, protecting animals, etc., etc. And here he's captured attending a bullfight in Mexico City, and I wonder what uh, his PETA friends would say if they saw that. Yeah, there's all these inconsistencies that, you know, we inevitably come to. And I think this is the message of one of the things that Jesus talks about in his ministry is this the fact that there's so many inconsistencies in our efforts as human beings that it's impossible for us through our own through our own, you know, try harder ism to just simply work harder at saving the planet or work harder at, at addressing these causes. And I think my my challenge to us as Christians would be in, in understanding this next generation that we don't want to just get them involved in a cause to change the world because it turns out, as we learn from the gospel and from, from the Bible, that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and in fact, you know, we, we need to have a healthy reverence for the Lord's work that we should care about these these issues, but we, we, we can't solve them in our own human effort and power. And yet at the same time, if our if our faith is simply about you know, believe these these things in order to get to heaven one day and convince everyone else to get to heaven because of your faith in Christ. If it's if it is simply and only about evan- you know sort of getting people saved and salvation, I think it also does this this generation a disservice. That they they really are called and interested in. Uh, in understanding how their faith gets worked out in the world. And so we owe them, I think, the, the depth that following Christ, that following the gospel means we're concerned about eternity, but we're also concerned about how we live our lives and the quality of, of how, the kind of impact we have on our neighbors and on our workplaces and on our families. We're talking about a new book, You Lost Me. And, you know, this really ought to sit on the shelf 
better put on the desk of um, every youth minister, youth pastor, every senior pastor, everyone who's engaged in organizations like uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, Youth for Christ, and so many others, as we gain a better understanding through the research of the Barna Group, uh, the attitudes of where young people are today, and most importantly, what we can do to get a better job at engaging the culture, capturing the culture for the cause of Christ, and as a result, not just reaching young people for Jesus, but keeping them for Jesus. Toward that end, David Kinneman, author of this new book, are, are there some of the trends that we're seeing, too, that some people feel as if, uh, young people feel as if they have to make a choice, that it's either between um, kind of launching out on my own identity or embracing mom and dad's religion, or even in some cases uh, with debates over everything going on concerning uh, science and bioethics and technology, even sometimes uh, young people may, feeling as if they have to choose between belief in God or science? Yeah, I think throughout this book and throughout the research that underlies it, we saw this really this choice that young people felt they had to make between their friends and their faith, between being uh, a young scientist or someone in medicine and their faith, between choosing to doubt or, or being comfortable with the doubts that they have and being faithful. Um, so many different places where young people feel like they, they have to choose between being the Christian they're called to be or being the person who they are. And you know, that's that's a challenge. I think, again, throughout Scripture, you see this tension where we, we have to live, you know, in the world, but not of the world. This is something that Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, the in but not of tension. And I think that's the tension that every generation has faced. I think it's more pressing than ever now with this generation. And throughout the project, again, we talk about the reasons for disconnection, but we also talk about the reasons for reconnection. So, for instance, when we talk about having to choose between our faith and our friends, we make the argument that really the church has done an an inadequate job of talking not just about the the singular uh, salvation through available through Christ, but how Jesus himself had this heart for outsiders and and really wanted to pursue people around him. You know, he was he was notorious for hanging out with sinners. He had a heart for people that were lost. And I think this generation feels as though the church experiences and their parents and the sort of the, the nice, comfortable Christian way of life pushes them to choose. Um, a, you know, uh, a, a way of life where they, they have to choose the safe, comfortable religious life or exclude their friends. And, and really, I think it's a false choice. And in so many of these cases, we learn that the choice between science and faith, between friends and faith, they're false choices that we need to reframe for young people. For everyone who has a heart for young people listening right now, whether they're engaged in full-time ministry or just love the Lord, love young people, what would you say is is the most significant message um, underlying You Lost Me that you want readers to take away from that can kind of be an action item for the church? Well, I care about this generation enormously. I love the church. I want to see them together. Um, and what we learned is that in so many cases, the, the friendships, the relationships that we think we have with this generation, they're not as deep as we imagine them to be. And I was also shocked to find how often these young people had no idea how their faith really intersects their vocation or their calling or what God calls them to do. I mean, as an expression, only 16% of young Christians said they knew how the Bible applied to their field or interest area or profession. 
And we need to do a better job. I mean, we owe this next generation so much more to prepare them to live in but not of this culture. And I think the research really gives you some tools, not only to understand the disconnections, but really to understand how do we reconnect, how do we learn from this generation and serve them as God pursues them and their heart and their potential service in the future for the kingdom. Some insights inside the pages of You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Nobly published by Baker Books, available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on the web. David Kinnaman, that's K-I-N-N-A-M-A-N, davidkinnaman.com. David, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.